0: Welcome back to Surf Splendor. We have a very special episode for you today. Two of our most popular guests of all time together for a one-on-one chat, Jamie Brissick and William Finnegan. Finnegan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author for his autobiography, Barbarian Days, which tracks his surfing life from Oahu to Fiji to San Francisco to Madeira, and his reluctance to reveal his surfing background and identity to his literary colleagues once he settled into his career as a staff writer for The New Yorker. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I discuss it in detail with Finnegan in episode 113 of Surf Splendor, It was about two and a half years, three years ago, uh, when he first published the book, and I've linked to that episode in your show notes. He and Brissick actually get into that book a little bit in today's episode, but the main reason for this conversation was to discuss Jamie's latest book, The Dazzling Blue. Brissick is a former pro surfer turned magazine editor, turned Fulbright scholar and author. His previous books include... We approach our martinis with such high expectations and becoming westerly. Surfing champion Peter Druin's transformation into westerly windina This latest book is a collection of short stories. One is an essay about a nude surfer amid a packed lineup at Malibu. One is a tribute to black surfers. One is a meditation on the hand jive. There's a conversation in here with uh, former world champ Peter Townend. It's all nonfiction, 58 stories in all. And this conversation and this book was pulled together by Birdwell Beach Britches, which I'm sure you know of. Birdwell is a pioneer in the development of surf trunks. The company was founded in 1961, uh, just a mere 10 miles inland from where I am recording this in Santa Ana, California. That same year, just 20 miles south, Gordon Clark made an amicable split from his relationship with Hobie Alter, which birthed both Clark Foam and then, of course, Hobie Surfboards. And then just 20 miles north, you have the surfboard manufacturing hub of the South Bay of Los Angeles, where Greg Knoll, Hap Jacobs, and many others, including Bing Surfboards, whom I published an episode with last week... So 1961 was a real flashpoint for surfing in Southern California. And Birdwell was right at the center of it geographically. And then also just because everybody needed board shorts and they developed their reputation for building high quality, durable trunks that were meant to really be heirlooms that you can pass from one generation down to the next. And they're all backed by a lifetime guarantee. So given that I have a personal relationship with Brissick, and this book is available exclusively on birdwell.com, I reached out to Birdwell to see if I could publish this chat on on the podcast and they agreed and in response they offered a promo code for you to purchase the book with and by the way birdwell is a full price brand that is never on sale but if you use our promo code which is just surf you'll get 10% off your entire purchase. The book is only 20 bucks, so that's a no-brainer. But if you've ever wanted any Birdwell's gear, this is the only time you'll be able to purchase it at a discount. Uh, They're best known for trunks, but you should grab a t-shirt. They have jackets, bags, beach towels, All of their manufacturing is still here in the USA and mostly in LA and Orange County, uh, as it has been for the past 58 years. So birdwell.com is their website. And again, our promo code is just the word SURF. Thank you, Birdwell, for that and for supporting Brissick. We do not get to see enough of his writing, and uh, we don't get to hear enough from him on this podcast. So... Without further ado, here is William Finnegan hosting Jamie Brissick for a chat about the Dazzling blue. Enjoy.
1: Away we go. Away Uh, we go. uh, I'm hoping that... that, uh... You'll read a little bit from this, sure. If you want to say anything about it beforehand, or
2: yeah, um, sh- short pieces that kind of um, the the theme is things we do in board shorts, yeah, which relates to Birdwell, but uh, they're kind of all over the map, and I think hopefully in a good way. Um, but I should you want should I just read one just to get, sure, get, sure. get, get it out of the way? I, I will say that. You read something that will be what it
1: is, but I'll describe some of the other things that are also in here and ask you about those. Because it is, a, there's some sort of standard straight Q&A journalism. There are, are super poetic pieces, really personal pieces, uh, celebrations of different things.
2: Thanks, Bill. Um, this, the, this one's called Dreaming Uluwatu. I was introduced to the dream of Indo even before I started surfing. In a mid-70s issue of Skateboarder Magazine, I saw pictures of Uluwatu, a concrete ditch where stringy, blonde-haired kids rode across banked walls as if they were waves. They wore raggedy T-shirts and Levi's cords and no shoes. They tucked low, pet the concrete. They evoked VW buses and Jimmy Page solos and Persian rugs and mandalas and incense and a bohemian otherness that looked incredibly romantic from my suburban cookie-cutter perch. Even the name of the skate spot was curvaceous and exotic, Uluwatu. I learned about the surf spot Uluwatu a few years later when I started surfing, and then about Indo at large. There was Steve Cooney in Morning of the Earth, Jerry Lopez and Peter McCabe at G-Land, Terry Fitzgerald and the Om Bali Pro. There were monkeys, Hindu temples, gamelins, dark-skinned, gentle-eyed folks with names like Katut and Made. But content was limited back then. The new discoveries in surf travel, Indo among them, were delivered in small taste via mags and movies. Unless you actually traveled there, there was a lot left to the imagination. You'd flesh out, project, make it your own. Indo was like this for me. I heard stories, most of which have become cliché. The board caddies, the mushroom omelets, the cheap massages, and of course the long reeling left-handers. The story of g discovery always stayed with me. Or at, least the na- or at least the one I'd heard. Bill Boyum and Bob Laverty slashing through the jungle with machetes until they find the epic wave. Treehouses to keep from being eaten by the many hungry tigers that prowled the night. I always loved the part about the early g surfers smoking just a small amount of heroin before paddling out on the really big days. The idea being that to properly meld with a wave so long and big and epically perfect, you had to quiet your nervous system. These stories swirled around my head for many years, co-mingling commingling with the Beatles' visit to the Maharashi in 68, the Alan Watts and Lao Tzu books I'd read, the yoga practice I'd taken on, a sort of shape, shape-shifting, multi-headed Eastern fantasy that was ultimately about escape, about escape. For what is this surf thing if not escape? I finally got to Bali in 1998. I went with my then-girlfriend, Erin. We'd been together for three years. We were on the rocks. I'd recently jumped into the executive editor's seat at Surfing Magazine. I was making the very magazines that had sparked my surf dreams. It should have been great. It wasn't. Surf industry politics bummed me out. I hated Orange County. I'd never been more out of touch with surfing. By that, I mean the actual act of surfing. Suffice to say, I brought a lot of baggage to Bali. We first stayed on the west end of the island, where I surfed a fun little river mouth wave and marveled at the ubiquitous Sari offerings. After a week, we moved over to the Bukit Peninsula and rented a room in a hostel. On the way to finally surfing the legendary Uluwatu, my girlfriend and I got into a fight. As our smiling board caddy carried my board down the trail, Aaron and I argued like ugly Americans, which in that moment we most certainly were. Paddling through that little cave that I'd seen in so many surf films, I did not marvel at the beauty or think amazing to be in Bali after all these years. I thought fuck her. The waves were a clean four to six foot. The sun was gloriously warm on my back. There were only a few guys out. I streaked across a couple. Then I got a real good one. Got that flying feeling I hadn't felt in a long while. As I steepened, as the wave steepened, lined up, maybe boiled just a little, I set my line, dropped a pig dog, and ran a petting hand along the face. There was a dazzling little view. Sparkles, froth, chandelier lips, steep cliff face, spinning mandalas, a dancing Ganesha. Then the lip clipped my rail, and I shot forward and banged into the reef with my left arm and shoulder and tore myself up real good. I've still got the scars. Nice. Thanks. Um, that was an unusually long... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean for at, it to be so long. No,
1: I don't mean... I mean, in a, in a, as a more complex, multi, you know, looking at a lot of different things mm-hmm. than than most of the pieces in here, which are so focused, I and mean, they remind me of Lydia Davis' short stories. They're, I mean, you sometimes just take something to celebrate, mm-hmm. you know, the surf shop, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Santa Ana wins. I mean, you just, you pick out these subjects that uh, uh, you just sort of celebrate often or look at them in a more nuanced or, or light and dark sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and But they're very artfully chosen. Um, this one's a special case, I think, but but a lot of them are, I mean, they're about surf, mostly, mm-hmm. in some way, and, and sometimes on the nose. And yet they're written both for surfers, in all the context we understand as surfers, and all the references, and for other people, too. So through these, I mean, anybody can see what you're looking at through these portholes mm-hmm. without necessarily knowing the whole context. Right. I mean, are you conscious of that? choosing the topic that'll resonate with everybody.
2: Yeah, I guess trying to, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking as, as I was walking here, um, you and I, you and I share surfing in common, but in many ways, our writing lives are almost opposite in the sense of you, you writing for the New Yorker from very early on and writing for a very broad audience. And I can I came. I kind of backdoored my way into surf journalism. I was a. I was a pro surfer, and then I started writing for magazines. I didn't really. I mean, I read and I traveled, and I. I think I was awake. You know, I, I was open and 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 taking stuff in, but I didn't have writing writing chops down. And and having gone in the back door and writing writing for surf magazines, I was writing to the converted. So there was this thing of, you know, we're all speak. We're all praying to the same God. We're all kind of <laughs> speaking the same language. And it, to some degree. I mean, it was, it, was, it was cool because it gave me an opportunity that probably would n- not have come otherwise. Um, but I also had to almost like learn how to explain things. You know, even for instance, in your wonderful wonderful book, Barbarian Days, the, the thing of like dr- writing a surf scene Having written for the magazines at Surfers Journal, etc., Surfing Magazine, I never wrote surf scenes because you just assume everyone knows. It was sort of this thing of like you're almost venturing into the purple, so to speak, if you even begin to bring the reader out in the water. They all know. Whereas the the type of reading, the type of writing you've done and you do so well in your book is is um, bringing people into this into this. Um, so so anyway, writing these th- this series, um, being trying to be just more aware of okay how to like strike that middle ground where mm-hmm. it's... And there is, a, you know, we could probably go on and on about this, but there's a way of... of You can overtell, you can over-explain, you can kind of just stall anything moving forward, or you can almost like stay so deeply in the, sh- in the kind of shorthand that it actually... It's like the codified language of surfers, and maybe someone doesn't get it, but they certainly get this wonderful world. They might be sort of slightly removed, but they're getting... They're, it's almost like we're not... We're not even going to, like, address you into the scene. We're just going to be ourselves in this world, and hopefully you'll get it, you
1: know? Yep. But it, things are very artfully chosen because, I mean, you can easily tell a surf scene in surf language the same way you tell it other surfers, and it's completely opaque uh-huh. feeling the outside. I mean, how often have we bored yeah. girlfriends and others who don't surf? Yeah, with surf talk. Yeah, um, but then there's a way to do it wh- that pulls people in, and even if they're not getting every specific, they don't know what Insalulawatu does down on the racetrack. Yeah, they're getting the idea. Yeah, and 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 I just think you over and over sort of thread that needle in here, and um, also I must say from that scene, um, <clears throat> there's a you control your ego so well. Uh, I mean, you're you're self-effacing. One knows that if you're getting barreled, something bad is going to happen. Uh-huh. It's 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 going to end badly, and and you know most surfers, you tell a story on yourself, it it usually you know ends great, um, uh-huh. especially guys who've competed as pros have that kind of alpha impulse. Sure, you really control
2: it in your writing. Well, but the, but that's that's kind of you say but the the very fact that i writing or at least got a start which in many ways it was sort of getting the start was what opened me up because i was living in sydney i was a pro surfer on the tour i was full of hubris i mean i would that the the very nature of being a pro surfer is is like this kind of muhammad ali rocky balboa kind of inner (laughs) voice of just like i'm the man i'm the man i'm the man and you have to pump yourself up with that and when i started writing for the magazines and And, in the beginning, I probably brought that to the magazines and uh-huh. and, and had maybe like I deserve to be here because i'm i 've been living it right yeah. There was that, but then very, very quickly it 's like as soon as I contributed a piece to a magazine that wasn 't a surf magazine, I was kind of like oh this t- I'm, I, I I learned very quickly not that tone doesn 't really serve, and in many ways, what was interesting is all my years of being a pro surfer, it was this kind of the blinders are on." And the more you stay focused on winning the event, and there were a lot of events on tour at that time, there was one year, there was 29 in a single season. So you can just imagine like that amount of travel. You're constantly in that, in that zone. The great thing is like every event's an opportunity to kind of rise up and and up your career and get your retainer with your sponsors better and become, a, you know, become that like inner Muhammad Ali. Um, but but so it's, it was kind of a great place to live, but I very quickly reading like journalism is the antithesis of that. It's about being curious. It's about listening. It's about paying attention to things outside of yourself. And I really realized there's a certain level of audacity that maybe like serves you as a writer, just to feel like you deserve to put something down and submit it to whatever magazine or or write a manuscript or whatever, but also like the, the voice you want to be all the writers that I admired you being one of them, there was this sense of being open to the world and listening to things around them, you know, which is very, I think very different to that very, that specific part of surfing, which is, you know, competitive pro surfing, whatever, where, where you're, 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 your own brand in every way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, um, you really accomplished that. I mean, there's so many appreciative essays in here, um, including <clears throat> pieces about friends, mm-hmm. uh, Jeannie Chesser, Derek Hine, mm-hmm. Jack McCoy, different, which to me is a tricky genre. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's because <clears throat> you have to find the tension within uh, any subject. And 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 writing a sort of pure appreciation of a friend is a, a, it's not journalism. Mm-hmm. It's it's something else. Yeah. It's more personal. Um, and yet to make it sort of vibrate, you've got to um, get at, more than just, like, I like this person and yep. hear all the wonderful things about them. Yeah. And at the same time, not sell them out. Yeah. Um, I don't know yes. how much you feel this. No, it's a very slippery slope, that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. The, the, um, there's, there's one piece in here that um, hits sort of on the nose some of the stuff you're talking about. I mean, you don't normally write about this, but um, this scene with your dad um, who kind of... Is a major character in this book, even when he doesn't appear. To me, he, is. Mm-hmm. Um, he <coughs> stops you, and you're on your way out. To like, re- you're sort of in your teenage prime. You're you're sponsored. You're happening as a surfer. Yeah. Could I mean and he, with this very sort of graphic imagery? Yeah. He asks you, "What are you really doing?" Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, it's for a,
2: sure. And it was one of the. It was such an important thing, and it kind of relates to the what we were talking about earlier. You know, when I, I was uh, I got sponsored by Quicksilver at age 15, and um, and then I started appearing in the magazines around that time, and then by the time I was 17, I was in, in magazines, and uh, the kind of, uh, how do you say it, the, the combination of puberty, mm-hmm. desire to get laid, let's yeah. just say it, and being a pro surfer with you know, slick new gear and, uh, and all the kind of ego that you can one can possibly have at that age my dad was sort of observing that and it was, at, it was at the age and it, you know, I'd go to, I was going to parties and I was meeting girls. And I, and at one point, um, I probably had the slick new garb on and I was swaggering through the house with friends and getting ready to go out and, and, um, you know, to a party and, and my dad stopped me and he, he said, um, he had been drinking wine, which I think actually was. I'm glad he was drinking wine because he was in that mood, and he, he, I think, he was observing very, very clearly. But he said, "You know, Jamie." Um, he's like, "Where are you going?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to a party." And he goes, "You know, um, when you're with a woman, it's, it's, it's important that y- you, you present you. And and what I mean by you is, it's not Jamie the pro surfer. It's not the cool guy who was in the magazine last month. It's you. It's the deepest part of you. And that was a Super powerful thing. I mean, it kind of just like popped the air out of my big bubble. Yeah. But in the best possible way. and He
1: was it, even more graphic than that. Yeah. I believe he said you need to stand naked in Yes.
2: Of- yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot that was the best part, <laughs> yeah. which ran counter to the the sponsor's yeah. barb.
1: But and it, normally, what your parents say is you're headed out when you're sixteen or whatever. No,
2: that's the thing. If I didn't know my dad as well as I did, I would have been like, "Yeah, Dad, I like the way you're thinking." <laughs> but it, but it was. Um, no, but it was very much, I mean, it's but it is. I, it's I something that honestly, I mean, that's been a running theme in my life is, mm-hmm. is and I think of it in, in it's funny because the, the um, I guess the piece that I read had this sort of Hinduism, but I think of the, a lot of the Eastern stuff that I read when I was young and the idea of not being too attached to one single identity, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, what, when I was a pro surfer, that was, it was interesting because like a lot of the books that I was taking in were almost undermining the whole pursuit of trying to be the one dimensional pro ego guy. Um. And I mean, you could argue, you know, if Kelly Slater was sitting here, he'd say, no, it's not so much the blinders and you don't have to have a Muhammad Ali inner narrative going. That's bullshit. But, mm-hmm. and he might be right, but for me it was. Mm-hmm. But then there was also this thing of like, don't get so attached to this idea of who you are because it's, it's a fluid thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that was adolescence. Yeah. If we could jump forward to the present, we're post-adolescent. Yep. Safe to say. And um, I'm, you're. Happily surfing Malibu these days, yeah, even first point yeah that 's sort of amazing to me, yeah, uh, we sort of come from the same place, Los yeah. Angeles, growing up uh, in the good old days, which weren 't that great, but yeah, but they always look better and and it 's always getting more crowded and and yet you seem to be reveling in even the most crowded surf
2: yeah but but I, that, uh, the one thing I must um, point out is it 's not it's not because i'm getting set waves or and it's not it has nothing it's almost and again this relates to the, this is becoming a theme it's almost the like undoing of any ego because i grew up surfing malibu and there was a time when i was one of the alpha dogs out there and I'm, I'm so far from that now
1: i mean I've, i don't know my friend john just surfed with you out of third point he said you were ripping
2: that's kind of, that was generous of him <laughs>
1: but go on but
2: but but, but um but there was a time when i had a spot in line lineup and then i'd moved to new york and then you know i came back and then i realized like i kind of lost my spot there's an entire new gen- new generation who are getting all the waves mm. but when i go there what it is is most of all it's just the the kind of disneyland of it all i mean and and it is it's just such a variety of people kind of all every socioeconomic stripe is down there and um and you get um I'm as enchanted by the parking lot scene as I am by the scene in the water. And if I go out and get a couple waves, I'm happy. But it's more just, um, I don't know. It's like having written a lot about surfing, it's its sort of like all this surf culture is just thrown into this one spot on, mm-hmm. and in every possible way. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's like every type of surfer that you could think of. Every kind of um, archetype of the surf world today mm-hmm. is down there. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go back there? Um
1: I go by. I surf nearby, mm-hmm. but I don't surf First Point. Yeah. I mean, that that just seems so masochistic to me. Yeah. And that same thing. I was a, I was a kid there once, had a place in the lineup, and now I'd just be one more you know old guy. Yep. Um, and waves with three, four, five, six people on them, and um, that's why I'm so amazed that you're able to to not fall into the grumpy local. Yeah. Thing uh, which is kind of ubiquitous in surfing, for sure, uh, and and just enjoy it. I mean, I mean, you really, um, I mean, you mine your memories and nostalgia throughout this book and in, and in general when you write about surfing, but you do it without an edge of of bitterness, with a mm-hmm. kind of generous
2: understanding and, and a sort of appreciation of what's happening now. That's yeah. rare. Well, you know, it's it, and you know, it's interesting and it's so apropos to surfing because I think. It seems almost contradictory, but the way we ride the ocean and it's never the same and it's fluid and it's about, you know, staying light on your toes and bending your knees and all this sort of flow thing, right? And yet so many aging surfers become the absolute opposite of that thing. And, but, you know, the one thing that I'm always grateful for, and I might have, I don't know if I've, I've written it before, so I'm repeating myself, but when I was in my mid-20s, I'd written pieces for Surfing Magazine. I wrote a kind of essay about Big Wednesday. And then I went down to Surfer Magazine, who I was contributing stories stories to regularly, and there was a note from John Milius' producer who was working on A Big Wednesday Part 2. So I got to meet and hang out with Milius quite a lot, because we were trying to develop A Big Wednesday Part 2 for television that never got picked up, Um, which it would have been nice if it happened. But most of all, I got to hang out with Milius, who was such a wise man. And I remember once he said to me... um, and i was you know in my mid 20s so i didn't even fully comprehend it but he was going on about bitterness and bitterness was still bitterness was still 10 years or 15 years or more out for me to even like <laughs> see that see people start to do that mm-hmm. and he goes never ever become bitter bitter bitterness is the bile of life and all those tendrils that that are sticking out and taking in new things they just they just shut down mm-hmm. and i didn't even know what that meant but it always stayed in my head and then as i was getting you know in my into my thirties and sort of things that my ambitions for myself that had never been realized, I was and then that that kind of voice could peak up of bitterness. So I guess I, that that applies to surfing on some level. I remember meeting Mickey Dora in France in the mid nineties, I think it was, and I'd mentioned I said, "Hey, you know, um, I grew up surfing Malibu," and he just gave this like faraway look and he goes, "It was a garden of Eden when I was there. Mm-hmm. They ruined the place." Mm-hmm. And so I think I've had like enough cautionary tale like i I feel like as many people i've been inspired by that are the older generation the the cautionary tales i've learned just as much and i've Mm -hmm. seen this thing of get kind of shutting down and being angry and bitter Mm -hmm. so it's like that thing of you know you get older i'm 52 years old you you have like material to draw from and you have decades to look back at you can pull Mm -hmm. little pieces Mm -hmm. but the tone of um it was better then i Mm -hmm. just kind of even if it is that, I just refuse to like let it sink in so badly that it's going to turn me into a pissed off, angry dude.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's also, of course, as you get older, you, your surfing
2: goes like this. I know there are a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like it's easier to get better than not. Yeah. What are, What is What's your surfing experience like now?
1: Well, I would not uh, just relax into first point Malibu, as I said. Um, I mean, I surf around here. We're in New York, and uh, there pretty good waves around here in the winter mainly, not this time of year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm still chasing, you know, waves where there aren't too many people. Winter around here, it's not usually too crowded. Um, and, and travel, of course, and, and again, try to travel to places where there aren't gonna be too many people and you can get really good waves. Still out on that edge of, you know, I'm not gonna relax into, but I mean you're, Malibu's a home base now, yeah. I and mean, you're living there. Yeah. That's where yeah. you live. Yeah. Um, but uh I'm not ready to I, I get to Hawaii pretty much every year. My sister lives there and mm-hmm. and uh and of course there it could be crowded, but um I'm still kind of chasing waves the way I always did, mm-hmm. not as a like full time surf bum, which was my twenties. Yep. But uh but looking for the same kinds of waves I always did, even if I don't surf them as well. Mm-hmm. And uh and I've, not got bitter, luckily. Yeah. Um but but neither have I relaxed into the circus the way you have.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well the, I if I had the option to be traveling elsewhere I probably would, but sometimes I I'm stuck in that that it's and, and living in LA County is really tricky. I mean mm. you almost there's no there I I am I do that thing where I'll happily sacrifice wave quality to have a little quiet moment. Uh-huh. But there specifically that um sacrifice of wave quality can mean like a knee high closeout wall everywhere else is good. So there are times when I'm kind of like, Oh, I could, I could go try to fight it out with all everyone at Malibu, but, but I, I might be defeated. And then I'm surfing up the beach somewhere tiny and not good at all. And then I'm kind of, and then there, there is this thing of like, I'm what I'm bummed that I'm here. Like I've been surfing my entire life and I'm riding the worst wave around because I don't feel like fighting out with them. So I don't always fight it out with them. Yeah. But the, uh, traveling is good. Um, I mean, it's a, Wonderful to hit all the good spots.
1: Yeah. And, and this time of year, that's really what we need to do, except there were some waves this morning. Huh. And I wasn't sure if we could, my friend John and I nearly dashed, but I wasn't sure I could get back here in time. Right. Uh, and tomorrow morning also.
2: Oh, if, wow. If you are interested. Interesting. I
1: think we might have a little something. Huh. Well, we won't say where. Right, of course. Uh, I wonder if we we're going to get some uh, questions from, from people out there. Anything come in? Ah, um, yeah, uh, maybe, uh, we've actually got a couple in here. Oh, I don't know. Um,
2: great question.
1: Yeah, this is a classic sort of, um, surf question. Um, it's well put. It's, you know, is there a favorite surf spot that you can name? And, uh, the, the, Reason it's tricky, of course, is that um, you usually can't name any of your favorite surf spots because you don't want to have too many people join you there. Yeah. Um, but any any place you'd want to talk you, about? You know, what's
2: interesting because we were having this conversation earlier about, um, you know, in the '70s there was that thing of you do, you just don't you don't out the spot, and they did it in the magazines. A lot of times they didn't. Um, they would show a beautiful wave, and they'd be very. Intentionally vague about where A it lot is. of times. I mean this was gospel. It was yeah. the only way to do it. Yes, yeah. And there was that there was a surf movie called The Forgotten Island of Santosh Santosha and it was somewhere in the Indian Ocean. I know where, but I won't say it, just out of respect. But it was the whole thing was like, we're just giving this a fictional name, yep. we're doing this film there, and, it, and we're not we're never gonna reveal where it is. What it um what do you well, – this is sort of a digression from that question, but what's your take on that whole thing? Do you think it still exists today, the idea – like is there, are we past the point of no return and you just expose spots or do you still keep it secret? Is that the code? Oh,
1: you still keep it secret. Yeah. And you keep hearing, oh, people are dropping pins and yeah. and giving it away on yeah. um, various ways. And it's true with Google Earth and what have you that it's much easier to search for waves when you're not out in the the place itself, out in the sticks. But um, I – this. Code seems fully enforced to yeah, me. Yep. I mean, I know people, I'm sure you do too, you're probably one of them, who know places and they won't tell you. You mentioned Slater. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a bunch of places, yep. from yep. what I can tell. And, yep. and I was interviewing him last year uh, about other things, but we come around to, oh, there's a certain place in Micronesia. And I was just, tell me, I've seen the photos, tell me where it is, you know, and he's not going to tell me. Yeah. And that's still very, I mean, he's not a kid, yep. but he. Represents sort of surfing at, at its center I, to me, and uh, and he's got privilege that the rest of us don't have. As, yep. as like greatest surfer of all time, everybody wants to share their secrets with him, uh, including Martin Daly. I think in that case, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I think the code's intact.
2: Yeah, I think the code's intact too.
1: Yeah, I'm, I try to adhere to it, but I'm still trying to get you to talk about any spot you M- particularly like. I
2: mean, I, I like Malibu, but it's not necessarily about getting the wave of the day. It's more just a, It's more this um, this weird, you know. I remember writing writing this about. I think I had like Tom Kern and Mark Ocalupo in mind when I was writing it, but I was saying that they're they're these surfers who are sort of mo- more at home in, on water than they are on land. Mm-hmm. And um, I had this realization the other day, and and it, because I've hung out in Malibu for so long, and my life is de- you know departed from there a long time ago. But when I go back, I instantly just like the feet on the sand and the, and the kind of the space of it all. I was watching like the shorthand of surfers at the wall there mm-hmm. and, and how, um, I don't know, just there's this like comfort in your own skin. Yeah. So it's not even necessarily about the break, but the way, you know, that, that would probably be for me, my, the spot that I feel most at home.
1: Yeah. What about for you? Oh, um, it's, it's a lot of can't go home again with me. Uh-huh. You know, I grew up surfing Malibu and Rincon, um, uh, in Hawaii. I, I, had favorite spots that I still go back to now, Mm -hmm. but they're crowded. They're just, it's not the same. Honolulu Bay, I really sort of cut my teeth there as a teenager, and and, uh, it's just so crowded that it's not the same thing. And my favorite spots these days, I can't talk about the usual. Um, I mean, I can say Jersey in the winter Mm -hmm. on a big south swell. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, there are hundreds of jetties, and I can't say which ones are, you know, because it's just a, it's not just the code. I mean, it's the reality of, of the, the people you share them with and how betrayed they would feel if you ever spoke in public about the places. Yep, yep, yep. So. Yeah. Um, but that's like my, my current thing. Right. It's, it's not like a, I don't have an old home break because uh, they, they don't exist anymore yeah. as they were when I was young. Yeah, yeah when I loved them.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, that's the w- rare thing about Malibu. Malibu looks, th- it's like, it looks like the set of Gadget today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the boards are from that era, too. A lot of them, Which yeah. is interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm really struck when I go there, it's true. Yeah. Um, but as you say, we're not, we're not in there like duking it out at first point and trying to get waves by ourselves. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. Um, should we talk a bit about writing?
3: Sure. We do sure. have a couple questions. Uh, sure. A couple more coming in, okay. yeah. Um, from Ken Lewis. You both have traveled the world surfing what has left a deeper impression? The waves you've ridden or the people you've
2: met? That's you first.
1: Um, well, if the subject is surfing, um, it's kind of the waves, but it's it's also the people you share them with. That's, that's a, a huge part of it. Um, it's, I mean, when I found myself doing a memoir about surfing, it was really a memoir about friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I actually didn't write about places, including Great Waves and places where I spent years surfing. Um, I didn't write about them if I didn't have a good friend to share them with, mm-hmm. because it's like it, it's kind of onanistic. There's something masturbatory about just oh me in this wave, me in this wave. It's there's the triangulation, there's the yeah. friend you share it with that, share, that shapes the whole thing. Yep. And uh, in fact, I lived in South Africa for a while and and uh, surfed Jeffreys Bay a lot, this Great Wave and and uh, Didn't write about it at all because Mm -hmm. I didn't have a good friend there that I surf with. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, and then there's the people you meet. That's like a separate question, like the South Africans you might meet. But none of that was necessarily connected with surfing in my case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you.
2: For me, it was kind of a combination because when I started traveling a lot, when I was young, I was a pro surfer and I was on the tour. But at the time, the world tour was not the dream tour it is today. Yeah. So it was, you know, we'd go to Australia and the contest would be at Bondi Beach or Manly Beach, which are not great waves. But you would find you, it was it was funny because the like to get on the tour was just simply to get near the good waves. So you would say go to Durban and the Bay of Plenty was a good wave, reasonably good. But the, the real joy was going, you know, the, the gold was going to J Bay and getting a few days in there. So it was this thing of we were like trying to get away from the contest venue, which was a big parking lot and a lot of people thrown on the beach to watch, and then you'd go ride the epic wave that you'd been seeing in the movies. Um, so the waves definitely st- stand out, but in some way, the uh, I think what you said is, I relate to that completely is just that um, I went last year to this World Masters contest and in, in the Azores and uh, all the. All my peers from the time I was on tour, and then even the guys I looked up to, like Simon Anderson and and um, Shane Haran and uh, Michael Ho, et cetera, were all there. The and guys I, from just before you. Yeah, the guys from just the generation before, and um, and to hang out with all of them was so it made me realize how big the friendship part of it is because it was I hadn't seen a lot of these guys in a long, long time, and to get them to be all together for a few days and having dinners together and drinks together at the end of the day, I just I I. I start, I'd almost forgotten how strong those bonds are.
1: Yeah. And this even comes right down to um, you get a great wave and your friend sees you. Yeah. They're paddling out. They're on the channel. And, and you know, as they go over the shoulder, it, the whole thing frames and it really, really happened. Yeah. Like maybe someone takes a photo of you, but even more so. Yeah. Um, it's, it's embarrassing almost yeah. how, how much that part means. I know. <laughs> you know or you get this great wave you come back and you say you can't believe the wave I got and they don't believe you <laughs> yeah, yeah and you yeah. think did that really happen
2: yeah <laughs>
1: uh, another question sure. from the yeah.
3: stream here William Nystrom as a, uh, Jamie as a writer what experience and project sticks out and brought you complete satisfaction what was the most rewarding project experience
2: oh that's nice um, um you know in some ways writing becoming westerly which is which is a kind of Biography slash memoir. It's a biography of Peter Druin who, who transitioned into Westerly wendina but I'd kind of figured out a structure for it where I could get pour a lot of my own surfing experiences into it, and so um, so it was. So the memoir side of it was a lot of uh, just because I'd had a p- parallel existence to some degree, although I came later. It was drawing on a lot of the the same stuff of kind of what it. Growing up in that scene, looking up to surfers, becoming a pro surfer, all that it was and and of course it was you know three hundred and thirty pages to get to have a lot of fun
1: i um, i should I should add that the, this book is which is wonderful, is also a um, a trial and a testimony of patience, like I have never read um, <laughs> the the subject, the hero the Protagonist of this book, um, Peter Drillian, Westerly, Wendina, um, is such an exasperating um, person and, and, and so self-involved. And, and, and Jamie just hangs in there narrating this person's story, which keeps starting over again. And, yes. and uh, it's incredibly frustrating, and, but then funny to read and impressive
2: as well. Mm-hmm. Thanks.
3: A question for you both from Matt Jacobson. Fascinating chat in Barbarian days, you talk about tongs and rice bowls as being frightening at the time. Do you ever get back in the water there?
1: Ah, I love that question. Nobody's probably going to know what it means, hardly. Um, <laughs> tongs was never frightening. Um, but um, when I was a kid, rice bowl, this, this uh, rarely breaking uh, wave on the south shore of Oahu across the channel from tongs, was frightening. And I've been dying to surf big rice bowl for many years now to find out what I would now think. I mean, I was, I was a kid then and uh, went on to, you know, I grew up and, and, and surfed uh, bigger waves elsewhere and, and heavier waves and rice bowl can't be, can't be as terrifying as what I recall. Um, but it was, it was considered heavy wave, you know, only the big guys could do it and, and us little guys were supposed to stay away from it. So I'd very much like to surf good rice bowl someday.
2: Is, is it the one that's kind of um, between Diamond Head and White, and Queens, and that stretch of Waikiki? It's in that stretch, yeah. yeah. It, there, there's another spot there called Suicides in that yeah. area? Yeah, 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 yeah sure. All it's these so little spots,
1: Sui's, tongs, and then there's a fair channel and rice bowl, which does, doesn't even normally show. It needs a solid
2: south swell to even show. What an incredible place, though, to come to, come to at, at the age that you did, and I read about it in your book, and, and just to have... Um, I mean just not only the physical environment but then the kind of hierarchy of the dudes around there and all this. Yeah,
1: stuff. yeah. It was it was as I said, Rice Bowl was sort of out of I remember Jerry Lopez who was I don't know, he's like a couple years older than me, I guess. Um he was a like a bigger guy. Mm-hmm. And uh he was uh going left at Rice Bowl, hmm. which was so unheard of. It was mm-hmm. like going left at sunset. It's just it's just you're into the impact zone, you'll never get back out. It's oops. I'm sorry. It's uh, it's dangerous. It's who is this guy? You know, right, I, mean, yeah. I I saw him at Alum I saw him. He was a good surfer, but but the thing that was special about it is that he went left at
2: Rice Bowl. Huh, huh.
1: So there was this hierarchy, and then there was like things beyond that, and there were a bunch of. I mean, Reno Abelira was one of the kids there. There were a bunch of surfers that went on to big surf careers. Yeah. Um, but the main thing was, as you say, the high and the Ben Ipo was there. These these are people who later became quite famous, but at the time were just local surfers. But, yeah. But um, kind of ruled the roost. And, and it was, and waves went up. And then, of course, to the North Shore of Oahu, they just they kept moving up. And how far up that were you going to go? Right. Was the question. Yep. I don't think you had quite that in California.
2: No, no, no.
3: All right, questions are pouring in now. Mike Nelson William, your book depiction of discovering Tabarua was viscerally exciting and straight up amazing. William and Jamie, knowing the internet has blown out most remaining discovery opportunities. Is there a region of the world that you're curious about exploring for surf adventure? In parentheses, that you care to share. <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: it's fun to going about. Thinking, I, yeah, I don't want to say. Malibu, first point. Uh,
1: it's it's um, I mean, there are of course the high latitude places, really cold waves. Yeah, that I'm not that keen on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you are.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I am in the sense I, I well, I don't like the cold water when I live. In New York, the winter there was a time after a couple winters and a couple of, um, getting so cold that I thought I was going to go into a seizure. I remember thinking like Thanksgiving is my cutoff. I know you do it right all year round, which is I admire. But good wetsuits. No, the wetsuits have gotten better since, and I have that. I I mean, in many ways, I and I know this almost contradicts the whole thing about Malibu earlier, but I don't like crowds at all. Mm. And so those high latitude places they do appeal in the sense of okay, it's it's a lot of rubber and you're kind of straight-jacketed and all that stuff, but then you have that experience. Um, And I recently worked on a a film, Chris Gentile's film, Self-Discovery for Social Survival, and there's an Iceland bit. And so Mm -hmm. I looked at a lot of that footage and I thought, oh, I'd love to be there. Um, And the wave quality was less, but just how exotic it was. It's like the exoticness. You know, we think often exotic implies like tropics. Like that antithesis of that is interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I live with a lot of regrets in this area. Like, um, I was in Morocco quite early when maybe a couple of people were surfing it, but I wasn't really paying good attention, and I feel like I missed it. I mean, all those right points mm-hmm. south of Agadir, yes. yep. I was so close to it. And In fact, another time I, I was on a boat, we were going to Nias in, in, uh, off Sumatra in the late 70s and just missed the Mentawis. I mean, they were right there. This set of islands was... With, with, Probably the greatest concentration of great waves anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. and and we sailed right by them. I never noticed them hmm. so there's wow. those places, but it 's too late yeah. and, and any place that's that 's remaining that I think has got a lot of potential, yeah one doesn 't want to <laughs> discuss Tavarua, i should I should mention it was a empty was an uninhabited island when my friend Brian and I went and camped there and, again in the late seventies and and uh, got great great waves and and it was unknown and Alas, um, later became known um, as this sort of perfect left off an island, and then there's an, there's an offshore reef that we didn't weren't aware of. Now known as Cloud Break, it's a more consistent, also a great wave, and uh, they built a resort, and and the rest is history. It's it's you know hmm. now crowded. Yeah. Maybe one or two
3: last questions
1: from the uh, the iPad, if any of this. Yeah, I, I was as I said, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about writing. Uh, sure. Uh, if you, um, I know these days you've been holed up in Northern California.
2: Recently I've been, I have been, but I, I've been in Topanga for the last few months.
1: Right. And, and I wonder if, uh, if you have a, um, a good solid schedule, a routine that that gets you to get your work done. You get up early in the morning and.
2: Y- yeah. though this, this is a fun conversation. <laughs> um not really but i but it's also and it's more anxiety and just pure survival mm. um of that i just got to keep working got to keep working mm. and it's so it's sometimes it's, it's maybe overly anxious but i um i kind of can't afford not to and it's mm. it's and and i'm grateful to have the enough work coming in where i've always got i never look I, i've always got something to work on mm. um and so i i w- there was a time when i thought like okay you, you know you get up early you have your coffee or whatever and then you just sort of turn all gadgetry off so you have no interruption and do your three-hour thing and leave it at that i'm kind of the opposite where it's just constantly trailing me and um so i will go from working in the morning writing longhand a bunch of notes going to do run an errand then i might start stop at like a starbucks to like bang that stuff into my computer to look at and i'm just kind of keep doing it when i was in topanga i um had a good rhythm of working at night, actually, which I normally don't do. I've never, I know, and we've talked about this, which I want to hear about that. But I would, after, I would surf sometimes in the evening or have dinner, and then around 8 o'clock, kind of work till midnight, which was good. Yeah. What about you? How how's it go for you? Uh,
1: it depends. Um, I mean, and my habits are getting worse. I'm pulling all-nighters um, pretty often now, often on deadline. But um, it's true also when the waves are good. That moves my schedule around, and and um, and I actually, uh, you know, I'll tell editors, "Oh, I, I've, you know, don't worry, I'll, I'm getting a lot of work done out in the water," which mm-hmm. is generally not true and, and uh-huh. doesn't work, but I've got to say something. And and but what is true is that, especially when it's good around here, it's usually cold. You come in, so you know, it feels so good to warm up and thaw out. Mm-hmm. That you're, you're really super calm. Yeah. And like there's no extra energy floating around, which I use to get distracted and look on the internet for this and that. And I feel like I, I write better into the evening usually because surf in the daylight, um, but after surfing.
2: and I agree with that. You know, I recently did one of those um, ice tub sauna combinations <laughs> yeah. that Laird Hamilton talks about. Yeah. And, uh, and I came like out of it. Surfing around here. <laughs> and it really was this. Uh, it put it was it threw you into an entirely different state and it was it was it was actually really good and it was really relaxed but i know we've talked about this over the years i remember you once talking about um how it can be great to have a you know when you're writing something long or something that kind of requires a lot of immersion um to have surfs in that Mm -hmm. and i definitely there is something i mean i don't know the the like sedentary nature of writing for the most Mm -hmm. part have a sur to get a, have a surf and then to kind of be feel good in your body. While, before you sit down with you know breaks probably, but like these long bouts of riding. Do you um, when you're doing say pulling all nighters? Do you feel like you're kind of burning the candle both ends and it's unsustainable, or do you feel like you get good things from kind of being on that edge of like uh, I haven't had enough sleep and I've got way too much caffeine in my system and I'm. It it with me
1: it, it's lately and it's not healthy has been working that, that I have trouble getting down to it, trouble getting down to it. Yeah. And I get tired to the point, you know, it's now long after midnight, I've got to get this thing done, um, that my mind sort of quiets down. Mm-hmm. I don't have any extra energy. And all of it goes into the the work, the writing, the yeah. composition, the, the subject at hand. Uh-huh. And I'll go on long stretches, four hours, six hours, and and, wow. and just plug right in there. And I'm not even aware what time. I know it's daylight now and... I'm just plugged in there, mm-hmm. um, but um, this is without the help of you know surfing or or much exercise. Usually, this is like on
2: deadline. I can't go do anything else. Yeah, for sure. Um,
1: it's it's not sustainable.
2: Yeah, but there is that thing, and it's almost kind of snowballing effect where, um, and, and 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 I definitely when it's dark out or when it's away from the hours where your your phone might be pinging or you might be fielding emails or whatever. But it's sort of like I, it, literally the wee hours. I mean, I've had times where I actually, I've been lately. I've been having things where I'm kind of, I wake up around three something, and then I'm awake till five, and I don't even get out of bed. But I'm actually scribbling notes or hitting things into my phone that are kind of fixing things I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, that when I say snowballing, it's that thing of you're so immersed in the thing that you're working on that um, it's it becomes obsessive, and more and more ideas come, and it mm-hmm. and it's not instead of like that. I've certainly had pieces that I'm not hugely interested in and sort of like I've got like one foot in it and one foot out, but then something that you really do care about and you're obsessing over and thinking about and trying to just, you know, fix, do the Rubik's cube of the thing that you're writing. um, It can be, I've had that experience, which I love, which is just like, it's just pouring out. You know, you just can't, it's like inescapable. It's inhabiting you.
1: Yeah. I suspect though that we're talking about longer pieces now, Yeah. Yeah. books and and long pieces and, and I must say that the, the many pieces collected, there must be 55, 60 pieces in, in, this, in this book, quick, 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 I mean, you read one of the longest ones, um, they feel so uh, effortless. The, I mean, every piece in here just just feels mm-hmm. like you had it, you didn't um, agonize and do bits and pieces of it as you, you, know, through your day as it came to you, and, and I don't know if it's true. Yeah but these feel really well turned and like they they came i don't know if they came easily uh-huh but
2: um no but i was going to make a joke because uh i remember talking to a friend a writer friend about that very thing and and he made the joke of well i i there's a huge amount of effort into making it look effortless sure. and i to some degree that would be the case with some of them because i you know I'm, i i do have pride i'm not I, I won't send anything out unless i've get it there's. I've never um, hurried through it all, um, but maybe having written a lot about surfing, there are these things where I've s- reached a point where I, I do feel like a sense of authority given mm-hmm. that I've been in it for a long, long time and mm-hmm. it's sort of like, okay, I don't, um, I shouldn't pull any punches. I should just like th- throw down. And the All the stuff is there and and um, I can stand behind it, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's a good description of, of the kind of, Confidence comparable to what a pro surfer needs to compete, uh-huh. that a writer needs to to publish, is that kind of that's that sense of authority over the topic. I yeah. actually know what I'm talking about here. Yep, which you've really got in this thing.
2: Yeah, thanks.
1: Well, I think we're out of time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks. And, thanks uh, so much, Bill. Yeah, and um, we'll uh, look for some waves tomorrow. Yes. All right. Good. Thanks a lot. You can thanks. Ah, uh, yeah sorry uh, you can find the book on burwell.com. Uh, dazzling blue great title for the for the book and uh, and what you'll find in it and uh, thanks a lot
2: and barbarian days on Amazon anywhere
1: uh, Amazon's one possibility okay <laughs> thanks sorry. a lot yeah thank you
2: I want to hold you every day so that I can
0: fall in your love arms. It's not easy. Darling, you made me lose my mind. It's The Dazzling Blue by Jamie Brissick is available on Birdwell.com. Use promo code SURF to get 10% off your entire purchase. The book is a mere 20 bucks, and like I said at the top of the show, Birdwells doesn't do sales, so this is the only time you'll be able to purchase at a discount. Great outerwear, jackets, of course board shorts, all designed as heirlooms to be used for a lifetime and then passed down to the next generation. All of their clothing has a lifetime guarantee, and as if manufacturing clothing in Southern California for the past 58 years wasn't reason enough to purchase, Birdwell's invests into the surf world by doing things like publishing Jamie's book. Their blog, by the way, is also well worth following, and um, recent profile features include a chat with Devin Howard, Bo Foster, Finless or Friction-Free Surfer Jordan Roden, who's one of my favorite accounts to follow on Instagram. All sorts of stuff. Follow it at birdwell.com, and of course use our promo code, SURF, to get 10% off and so that they know that we sent you. We link to it all on surfsplendorpodcast.com where you can also find the past episodes that I've done with both Finnegan and then multiples with Jamie Brissick, as well as our entire archive of six different shows, over 300 episodes in total, all for free, where you could find it on iTunes, Spotify, or any other major podcasting app. And if you're there, I encourage you to just please rate and review the show in whatever app you use. That helps with our ranking, and then it helps strangers to find it. All right. Thanks so much to Birdwell, um, Jamie Brissick, and William Finnegan. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this chat and just being on the listening end of the podcast. So I'll be back next week with another installment of our Temples of Stoke series on surf shops in Southern California. But until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. I want to
2: lose my mind every day.